and let's begin. Good evening, everyone. you're not dead. You're just listening to Curiouser and Curiouser on a Saturday night. Welcome, everyone. Um, That was a little bit of uh, music from the period of William Shakespeare. It is uh, actually Clare College in Cambridge. It's from an album called Tudor Anthems and Motets, and it was actually one of the composers who was the very favorite of Elizabeth I who was the monarch uh, during the time of William Shakespeare. Uh, The song is called Sing Joyfully by William Byrd. Uh, I do think it was a better selection than what I was planning to play, which was um, uh, had a lovely title, uh, Orlando Gibbons, O Lord in Thy Wrath. Uh, So be thankful I did not play that. But welcome, everyone. I'm Sarayu, and I'm so glad that you're here tonight. We are going to dig into the wisdom and advice of William Shakespeare. Uh, Many of us uh, had to study him in college and depending on, uh, and and graduate school maybe, uh, depending on your orientation, you either loved him or you were suffering through the classes that you needed to take where you're reading his plays. Um, But if you give the bard a chance, what you find is that there is tremendous insight and wisdom in the works of William Shakespeare. Uh, and, and they are on par with uh, Rilke and Rumi. Uh, many of the phrases that are in modern usage uh, are things that harken back to Shakespeare, and we are not even aware that we are using uh, phrases that he coined uh, or that were first sort of seen in his plays or sonnets or poems. Um, and, you know, I personally grew up in a household where 
whenever I was sort of feeling down or had a situation I was grappling with, my mother, who uh, was uh, studied Shakespeare as well, I think one of her masters was in Chaucer and Shakespearean literature, would always quote Shakespeare to me. Um, however, that is not where my love of Shakespeare came from. I would just sort of, as most kids, let it sort of roll off my back when she quoted it to me. But um, it was really sort of when I first read Romeo and Juliet in high school. I think I must have been a freshman. Um, and it was the very first book that made me cry. Um, of course, when you're tackling that language as a young person, it's not easy to kind of get through and understand uh, all of the English of that time and, and the way that, you know, there are double entendres and, and uh, there's so many different meanings and it can be very difficult. But I do remember it was the first time and I was a voracious reader, but it was the first time I had a physical reaction um, in the form of tears um, reading Romeo and Juliet. And also interesting around the same time, Evil and Waugh, another British author, uh, was uh, the book that made me laugh out loud. It was a book called Black Mischief that we were assigned to read. So um, the first time I actually out loud laughed and cried uh, reading literature. And I sort of put it aside. And then when I was a, I think it was a junior in high school, I stumbled into the role of Cordelia in King Lear, ended up on stage somehow at the Folger Shakespeare Theater, won an award from uh, Gandalf, uh, no joke. Um, Sir Ian McKellen, uh, who was not Sir back then, was uh, giving out, he was a Shakespearean actor, and he'd been invited to the Folger Shakespeare Theater in Washington to watch this performance and gave give out awards to the young performers. And I got excellence in acting in a most difficult role. So, you know, uh, clearly I wanted more of that acclaim. And so I just started to read the plays and started to fall in love. And by the time I got to college, declared an English minor, uh, which was very difficult with an architecture major, uh, and also acted uh, on stage and just fell in love with Shakespeare and uh, have been a huge fan ever since. And um, one of the things in my um, older age that I've discovered is that mother, as always, was correct. Um, there were so many great pieces of wisdom and advice and counsel uh, and observations about human nature that still hold today. So what we're going to do is I've got about 24 or 25 different quotes from uh, various uh, plays and uh, we're going to take a look at them and hopefully you'll be walking away with a little bit more insight into yourself or human nature, or maybe this will inspire you to read the plays if you're not familiar with them or look for the wisdom that's embedded in them. because this is, it's, it's sort of extraordinary, really, if you think about it. He was such a modern writer. So what we're going to do is um, take a little bit of a step back and I'm going to share a little bit of background for people that uh, don't know about Shakespeare, which sounds sort of uh, crazy that people may not know in this day and age, but um, you never know. So I thought um, what we could do is uh, talk a little bit about who Shakespeare was. Um, and I want to start with a quote uh, from Ben Johnson, uh, who called Shakespeare uh, not, I think he, I think it was Ben Johnson, uh, he said he was not of an age, but for all time, which I think is a beautiful sort of quote. Ben Johnson was a poet laureate 
uh, in Britain at that time. And I'll give you a little bit more information about him. But I think that quote sums up who this man was. So Shakespeare was a writer, a playwright, uh, a poet, and an actor. Uh, obviously, he was British, uh, and uh, he was alive from 1564 to 1616. Uh, and this also coincided with the uh, uh, rule of somebody else that I'm in love with, Elizabeth I. Uh, and so uh, many of the plays and sonnets and poems reflect the mores uh, of that time. There are references to the Queen, um, and it just sort of fits into that kind of uh, Tudor and post-Tudor period. Uh, he was a prolific writer, 39 plays, 154 sonnets, three long narrative poems, and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, mostly written between 1589 and 1613. Um, and he is considered basically one of the most influential writers in the English language, um, read, studied, interpreted, performed uh, today over and over and over again. Um, and there are lots of arguments about what he meant. There's a lot of debate. And that's actually one of the interesting things about these quotes, because they're layers of meaning. And so if you actually do some research on any one of these quotes, you'll probably find multiple uh, sort of uh, interpretations of what was meant. Um, and you'll be surprised to learn that many of the things that we kind of, the phrases that we sort of throw around today that come from Shakespeare actually had very different meanings. And we'll look at one or two of them uh, tonight. But uh, he, just his life, a little bit about, about his wife, he was married to uh, a woman named Anne Hathaway uh, when he was 18. By the way, she was 26. Let's talk about modern. Uh, they had three children, uh, and he was an actor, a writer, a player, uh, part owner in a theater troupe called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which was very, very successful. Um, it later was renamed the King's Men, uh, and uh, this was under James I, who succeeded Elizabeth and uh, extended their patents. And at that time, they, they changed the name to the King's Men. Um, but uh, it was uh, a, a successful, um, the, this particular acting troupe was very successful. By 1594, they were only sort of doing Shakespeare plays and became sort of a top playing company, which made Shakespeare a relatively uh, wealthy man. Um, he ended up passing away at the age of 52 after retiring at 49. Um, there was lots of controversy uh, around him. Uh, I should say today there's a lot of controversy because very little was known about his private life um, or really kind of his life at all. And in fact, there are many debates about did he write um the plays or the sonnets. Um, and so uh, you will find there, I mean, I think they're sort of acknowledged as fringe groups today, but you will find that there are quite a few uh, sort of uh, little uh, holdouts of people that believe that Shakespeare was actually an amalgamation of multiple writers or that he had a lot of help from other writers in the day uh, or that uh, frankly, he just didn't exist and it was somebody else altogether. Um, and so there are questions about whether he authored the work and how much he collaborated with others, but uh, most people accept that he was, you know, a real person uh, and he wrote most of the plays. Um, so um, his works uh, fall into a couple of different categories to make it easy for people. They're the comedies, the tragedies, which are my favorite, uh, the histories and the romances. Sometimes plays get... Uh, 
uh, categorized in more than one box. Um, something that might be considered like Romeo and Juliet is often considered a romance, but it's also actually a tragedy. If you know the story, it's sort of young love gone wrong. Um, and so there are some plays that kind of straddle both. Um, there are also uh, four plays that are called the problem plays because they kind of don't fit into sort of any theme. Uh, and uh, some people do feel that they fit into one of these three or four boxes. Uh, other people don't, but there are four plays that are named the problem plays. Um, you know, we know by sort of like the 1590s that his plays were being performed uh, and reviewed in papers, uh, and sometimes badly. Uh, and so he became wealthy, as I've mentioned, as a result of this. He bought a second large house in Stratford. Um, and eventually his theater troupe ended up building their own theater called the Globe in 1599, uh, which ended up burning down in 1613 during, um, a performance of, of all things, Henry VIII. Uh, Shakespeare also acted in his own plays, uh, even after he was successful. Um, so I think the interesting thing about all of these plays is they're difficult to date, uh, but the histories, um, it's believed that the histories of Richard III and Henry VI were written first. Um, and uh, he was not, he was praised and acknowledged in his lifetime but not like at the superstar level that he is, right? Everybody knows that if you're at a party and you start quoting Shakespeare thought, or start talking about Shakespeare, people think you're really smart. Uh, they think you're astute, you are literate. But um, that was not necessarily the case during his own lifetime or even in the periods directly after. He was successful and he was respected, but it wasn't at the superstar status that we think about um, today. Um, and I think it's, you know, we, what was extraordinary about all of these plays was a couple of things. Um, incredibly modern. Although they were written, you know, what, 16, 1500s, 1600s, uh, a really, really long time ago, um, they're thoroughly modern. The advice that you're going to hear and find are things that you are going to be able to apply to your life. You're going to go, yep, I could have used that advice three years ago, or great, this is exactly what I needed to hear to resolve this situation. Um, so they're timeless. They're incredibly insightful and they're wise. They're not always um, something that are brand new that you've never heard. Uh, oftentimes they echo timeless and ageless wisdom from all over the world. Uh, uh, you know, there were ancient um, sources of, uh, you know, there's uh, for the Jataka tales, for instance, that came from India, which were the tales of the Buddha. And uh, they were literally just tales of humans, animals, and things that were reincarnated, uh, uh, you know, from uh, you know from the Buddha, and usually a moral story. And at the end, you know, you kind of get a lesson. And they were called the Jataka tales, and they always had a moral, you know, uh, you know, don't cry over spilt milk, uh, uh, don't count your kitchens be uh, chickens before they're hatched, things like that. Um, and so you will find like some of that timeless wisdom that comes from that and China and Socrates that is kind of reworded and in, embedded in his plays. Uh, and again, applicable to modern sort of modern day life. Um, but um, he he puts his own twist on it. So it's really very sort of uh, it's it's amusing and interesting to read because it's it's, it's different from what the original was. And he's and he's dealing with all of the issues and problems 
uh, of modern life back then and showing us that very little has changed. So this is astonishingly insightful and wise writing. Uh, he provides an observation and analysis uh, and a remedy uh, for human nature and the human condition. Um, and you will see this, that, you know, all of this stuff, it's not going to sound dated at all. The actual quote may sound dated, but um, when we interpret what it means, you're going to go, yeah, I know that. Why do you know that? A, it's common sense often. B, you've seen it on a coffee mug. Uh, C, you probably have an inspo app that you, one of these quotes showed up in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, T-shirts, notepads on pens. Uh, we use these phrases. Uh, the phrase, for instance, something wicked this way comes, which is a phrase that I love, came from Shakespeare, um, in a pickle, which is something that we uh, don't think of as attributable to anything other than a modern time, came from Shakespeare. Uh, so you start to see sort of these interesting kind of threads from today back then to, to back then. So he's dealing with ancient wisdom, uh, mixing it with what was modern situations at his time, and they're presented via the vehicles of his plays and via the action and dialogue of the characters. Uh, they're profound, practical, modern, and applicable to life. Uh, I will also say I've seen them show up on tattoos of people. They didn't know it was Shakespeare. I've seen it tattooed, and I'm like, whoa, that, that's Shakespeare. That should be attributed to Coriolane. You know, I'd probably get punched in my face at a bar for saying that. But the truth is that um, a lot of the stuff that people get tattooed on their body comes from Shakespeare. So um, I wanted to share a quote from uh, actually Ben Johnson, who I'd mentioned, is, was not uh, the poet laureate of England. It was a, a gentleman named John Dryden, who was the first poet laureate in 1668 and a, liter a literary critic as well. And this is what he says about Shakespeare. Shakespeare was naturally learned. He needed not the spectacles of books to read nature. He looked inwards and found her there. And I think that is sort of a great way to kick off some quotes. And let me also, before we dive into these quotes, a uh, couple of other things I want to quickly point out. Um, sometimes people find uh, that Shakespeare is, um, the plays are difficult reading on the first attempt. Most of us, you know, might have inadvertently or unconsciously quoted a phrase or line from Shakespeare, but not known it, you know, sort of um, parsed down to something today. But his work really is that ubiquitous. Um, he is also obviously, no surprise, a master writer. So there are his wordplay, his double entendres, uh, multiple meanings of things. Uh, there are characters that run through some of the plays. Uh, there's a character called Falstaff that appears across plays. Uh, there are devices that we're going to talk about that are really, really interesting. Um, but I think the most important thing is what I'm always struck by you're going to hear me say again and again is the modern the modernity and the fact that this guy, the guidance and wisdom that he gives is literally at the level of a Rilke, um, who is somebody that I love reading, Rainer Maria Rilke, the Viennese, um, uh, I would like to say poet, philosopher, um, making Shakespeare sort of an ultimate therapist, psychiatrist, uh, and psychologist. So let's get started uh, with a quote. Uh, and so the first one is from a play which many of you may be familiar with called Hamlet. It appears in Act One, Scene Three, and the quote goes like this. 
this above all, to thine own self be true. What does that mean? Well, this was a character named Polonius, who was an advisor uh, to the king and queen. He was very talkative and selfish, and he was speaking to his son. Um, and he uh, basically, you know, the context was he was saying, watch out for number one, uh, you know, don't lend, don't borrow money, don't hang out with dubious women or bad men, be careful, uh, you know, about yourself, all else will follow. Uh, but today, it means something completely different. What does that mean? Well, and I have literally seen this quoted on people, uh, sorry, tattooed on people's bodies. Um, it basically means be authentic, be true to yourself, uh, to your own beliefs, your own desires, to your own principles. Uh, I think most importantly, and I think this is so, this resonates with me. Uh, I've heard this from various kind of uh, new age gurus. Don't betray yourself. To thine own self be true. Above all, to thine own self be true. That's the meaning that it has taken on today. Um, the second quote we're going to look at. The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. This is from a play uh, called As You Like It. It's a comedy. It appears in Act 5, Scene 1. And it's spoken by Touchstone. Touchstone is a... Uh, fool, a court fool. And it's a very interesting device in Shakespeare, the device of the fool, the dwarf, the jester. Anytime you see that character, uh, take a second look because generally these characters are often strange. They're disfigured sometimes. Uh, they're witty, they're insightful, they're dark. Uh, they live on the edge. They're courting disaster because they're truth tellers. These are characters that in a sort of pun or a song, sometimes just straight to the face of the king will tell him the truth. And they get away with it because they sort of like live in a twilight. You know, they're, uh, they're strange characters uh, and they're supposed to be very close to the, um, the kings and queens that they're serving. At the same time, they're almost untouchable because they can speak things that other people would be beheaded for. Um, and uh, this particular sentiment is something that you see across ages and cultures. Uh, this, the, the quote, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Uh, Socrates uh, expressed it by saying something very similar. The only thing that he knows is that he doesn't know. Um, you have this sort of in ancient India and China, wisdom from the East, those who don't know say, those who say don't know. Uh, we also have modern day uh, interpretations of this. Empty vessels make the loudest noise. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And you see this in pop culture, okay? If anybody's a Game of Thrones fan, Tyrion, the dwarf, a true king, doesn't need to say that he is a king. In other words, if you have the substance, if you're really it, you really don't need to run around saying that you're it. You don't need to be posting on social media. You don't need to be talking about whatever it is you've achieved. Uh, this also expresses the same sentiment as that quote. And uh, no other than no other than Lil Wayne also has a wonderful uh, similar quote. Real G's move in silence like lasagna is the actual quote. Real G's move in silence like lasagna. It's actually very, very clever because obviously the G in lasagna is silent. 
So there's a little bit of a double entendre there because the you know, G is not pronounced in the word lasagna. But what he's really saying is a real gangster doesn't need to talk about, you know, doesn't need to show you his gun, talk about, you know, how much his watch costs, how many cars he has, uh, you know, how many sort of deals he's doing. Uh, you don't need to know about it. You'll learn about it when the time comes. Um, so this is clearly a very, very sort of modern uh, insight that has been expressed in many other ways uh, today. Um, and I also, I also think it's just great advice. I mean, everything that I'm reading to you today, uh, take it as a piece of advice. The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. The third quote, also, this is very profound and beautiful. Love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. And I love this. First of all, the progression of words, all, few, and none, I love. Love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. Uh, this quote shows up in All's Well That Ends Well, uh, Act 1, Scene 1. It is spoken by the Countess to her son after his father has passed away and he's leaving town. And what it means is, the first part, love all, be as kind and loving, obviously, to all. Not just your friends or those that are doing something for you or helpful transactionally, but those who uh, we find challenging. And most importantly, maybe those who have betrayed us um, and have hurt us. That is the test. How do you behave when you're squeezed? Uh, because it's easy to be nice and kind to people that are being nice to you or doing something for you. But what about somebody that challenges you? That's the real test, right? So love all. Second part of that quote is trust a few. Share with only a few. It's truly a privilege what you share of yourself with people. And this is something that I think has is lost in our modern society. Um, first of all, most people don't care. Um, and many people are not worthy of hearing what's going on with you. And a few people have bad intentions for you. Um, so you don't want to run out and share sort of everything that's happening with you. So trust a few. Um, you know, I saw many years ago, I was watching an Oprah show and I don't remember who she was talking to, but she captured it brilliantly. Um, she was talking to like sort of one of these, like Brene Brown or one of these self-help gurus. And she was saying, here's the thing. When we live in a society where, you know, everybody's too busy to hear everybody else's problems. And that's why, you know, psychiatry in, in for one and therapy is sort of through the roof. One reason why it is, you know, if she says the way that I view things, when I share a problem with a friend, it's a privilege. I am actually sharing something that I wouldn't normally share with most people. And it's a privilege that I open up to you and that you see this part of my life and that I feel safe enough to be vulnerable with you. And that so resonated with me, you know, spot on. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think in our society, often, not always, but often people sort of think of it as a burden, like, oh, crap, here comes so and so to talk to me about whatever. But really, why don't you view it as they see you as a light in the darkness? I think that was a Mahatma Gandhi quote. Uh, but, uh, you know, and uh, that the person that's coming to speak to you is actually giving you a high compliment by saying that they trust you, you know, the very act of them opening up to you shows that they're sharing a sensitive, uh, you know, precious part of themselves. So that's trust a few, right? Your joys, your sorrows, your accomplishments. Um, 
just trust a few. And again, that is so counterintuitive to our culture today. Uh, but I think it's also very smart and strategic and wise not to put everything out there. Um, the last piece of that is wrong to none. Don't hurt or wrong anyone. Don't reciprocate if you have been hurt. I think that is great advice. Uh, and I think it's really easy to sort of sail through life uh, and be neutral. But what do you do if somebody has done something to you? Um, so I think the sort of wrong to none adage is something to kind of think about and live by. It's not always possible. We're human beings. We lose our tempers. We want revenge. That person can't get away with that. But I think when you look at this quote in its entirety, it's just such a beautiful piece of advice to just sort of keep over your, you know, keep in your head or print out and, and put on your wall. Um, because I think it really is very profound, even though it doesn't sound that way. It sounds trite. It sounds like it should be on a mug. But when you take a deep dive into it, it's quite profound. Love all, trust a few, want to none. Our fourth quote comes from a play called Measure to Measure, Act 1, Scene 4. And it goes like this. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Our doubts are traitors. What does that mean? Our doubts are not reality. When you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I can't do it, or I'm not good enough, or, you know, they made a mistake in picking me, those are your doubts speaking, and they don't represent reality. Uh, doubts are illusions. So our doubts are traitors. That's the first part. They're not real. And they make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt and what they do is when you start to internalize those doubts, which we all do, it's so much easier to believe the bad than the good. We easily believe doubts. We fear to try and we decide the game is over before we even start it, right? We fear to attempt um, and we end up losing the prize when we fear to attempt. Um, when you're not trying, you don't, you lose 100% of the shots you don't take. I forget who said that. I want to say that it was Michael Jordan. It's not uh, don't hate, um, but do feel to correct if it was not. Um, but we lose the prize because we don't attempt. And why? We don't go for it. We don't try the shot. We didn't talk to the person we wanted to talk to because we allowed our doubts to, we allowed our doubts to basically take place of common sense, right? So our doubts betrayed us. Um, and they tripped us up. They're traitors. Uh, we might have won. We might have achieved. We might have grown. So don't listen to your doubts. Again, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. So just remember that. Doubts are traitors. Number five. This is from the great tragedy of Hamlet. Act two, scene two. For there is nothing good or bad, but thinking that makes it so. Hamlet uh, is the Prince of Denmark, and in this particular uh, act and scene, you know, he's mentally not okay. His dad has died. His mother has married his uncle, uh, and they see him as a threat uh, to the kingdom. Uh, so they send his friends to check on him and his state of mind. And uh, his, uh, you know, his friends aren't really so bright, and so he basically tells them that he's in this mental and physical prison uh, and he's a state of anguish uh, and they disagree and this is what he replies for there is nothing good or bad but thinking that makes it so 
uh, what is he saying? Perspective matters. It's a very profound insight, right? Uh, if you think big, big, you're big. If you think small, small, you're small. Um, this is a message that you have seen a thousand times. It is, you know, it has been, I'm sure it chiseled into ancient Rome on walls uh, across times and cultures. Um, clearly, Hamlet's not in a real prison. Uh, he is in great mental anguish at the death of you know, of his father and what's happened with his mother. Um, but he's astute enough to say, for there is nothing good or bad, but thinking that makes it so. So if you think it, it is so. Um, and I actually even think there's a Bible quote, uh, which maybe is the sort of inspiration and origin um, of that particular quote. Um, so also a really wonderful person. Um, and this quote is something that I am sure sounds familiar. Um, it is from a play called The Merchant of Venice, Act 2, Scene 7. And it is, all that glisters is not gold. Now, you may be saying, that sounds familiar. Well, uh, it should, because you've probably heard, all that glitters is not gold. Um, and it's really, the, the, it's very interesting, the origin of this. So there's a character named Portia who has inherited money. Um, and of course, a lot of men are interested in her. She's a single lady, young single lady. And so her father is very worried about the intentions of these men because she's come into this wealth, creates a test. He has three gold caskets, sorry, three caskets, one gold, one silver, uh, one lead. And this with different scrolls. And uh, if the suitor chooses the right casket, then he ends up winning Portia's hand. The gold casket contains the scroll uh, that says all that glisters is not gold. Basically saying, eh, you chose wrong. You chose the gold casket because you were after her money. And therefore, you were never really interested in my daughter or her welfare. You never really loved her. So you lose. So that's the little test that he devises. Um, and of course, you know, I think it's sort of self evident, but the ancient wisdom is that, you know, just because something's shiny and pretty and attractive on the outside, it doesn't mean that it has any intrinsic value, that it is, uh, you know, it is something that is valuable on the inside. Um, and we have many other sayings that, uh, sort of express the same sentiment don't judge a book by its cover, right? We have um, entire, in America, we have an entire period of history, the Gilded Age, named after this. What does that mean? It's guild is a veneer. It's not actual gold. It's a veneer of value, right? Which is very appropriate for that time because it was a, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and, uh, it was a time where uh, the robber barons built their, you know, humongous sort of mansions on Fifth Avenue and in Newport and in the Berkshires. And there was a lot of conspicuous consumption, you know, ridiculous parties were thrown. Um, and what's interesting is so little remains at those times uh, other than sort of Newport, which seems to be intact. Uh, there are very few of those mansions that remain in, in, in New York. So the Gilded Age is a wonderful sort of example of that. Um, and I want to share the larger quote with you because it's um, really sort of nice to hear. And it goes like this. Um, 
Oh, hell, what have we here? A carrion death within those empty eye. There is a written scroll. I'll read the writing. All that glistens is not gold. Often have you heard that told. Many a man his life hath sold. But by my outside to behold, gilded tombs do worms enfold. Had you been as wise as bold, young in limbs and judgment old, your answer had not been enscrolled. Fare you well, your suit is cold. Um, and so that was what was on the scroll. And by the way, it, this uh, interpretation says glistens, but it's actually blisters. So another sort of great piece of advice to keep in mind. All that glisters is not gold. Or don't judge a book by its cover just because it looks beautiful. Doesn't mean it may be, but, uh, you know, beauty can be skin deep. Number seven, heat not a furnace for your foe so hot that it do singe yourself. This comes from Henry VIII, uh, Act 1, Scene 1, uh, and it's spoken by Norfolk, character named Norfolk. But what it really means is don't get so angry at your opponent uh, that you end up hurting yourself. Uh, it's drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And this is literally what that is saying. Heat not a furnace for your foe so hot that it do singe yourself. So, you know, in, it's act rashly, regret and leisure. That's sort of another uh, saying very similar to that. So, um, you know, just if you're, I think one of the, I think when I was, I think in my 20s, I saw a quote, um, which I think kind of captures this, um, which was, you know, don't, you use your anger. Don't let your anger use you. Because um, when your anger uses you, you end up heating a furnace so hot that it ends up singeing yourself, sometimes destroying yourself. Uh, our eighth quote uh, is one that should also sound very familiar. It's from uh, the wonderful uh, tragedy of Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2. And it goes like this. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. I think we've all heard that at some point or another. Um, and uh, it very simply means, uh, well, let me back up and say that the context is that uh, Gertrude, who is Hamlet's mother, is watching a play of a queen, a widowed queen, who is being asked in the play, um, will she remarry? And the, uh, the queen in the play goes on and on to say, never, impossible, I'll never remarry. You know, there was only one man for me. That was the king. And so Gertrude uh, basically makes this statement. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. And uh, it's an enormously, enormously complex meaning that has, uh, sorry, uh, enormously complex quote because it has so many different meanings. Um, but the one that is sort of most commonly attributed to it is, Someone that's kind of going on and on about something, uh, maybe they're praising their children or, uh, you know, proclaiming their innocence or, uh, you know, talking about how much they love something. It starts to ring un untrue uh, and it starts to ring hollow, right? I think this goes in line with one of the earlier quotes about, you know, something's precious. You don't really put it out there. Publicly professing. Uh, something uh, a little bit too much can sometimes often come off as being insincere. Um, and I often think of this, you know, often, you know, the same quote, Game of Game of Thrones, Tyrion, where he says, a true king doesn't need to say he's a king. 
I often think of it when I'm like on different social media and I see like, like husbands and wives or girlfriends and boyfriends living in the same house are posting to each other on Facebook and I'm, or whatever. And I'm always thinking that's sort of odd. Like, don't you guys live together? Why does everyone else need to see this? It often seems disingenuous. And I mean, the first thing most people think is, uh Oh, that's a marriage in trouble or, uh Oh, that's a relationship in trouble. We all realize that we may all do it. Uh, but we all kind of, it's, it's a show. And this quote is wonderful in capturing that the lady doth protest too much methinks. So it's an observation uh, about overdoing things. Today, that quote is interestingly often used in jest, although it really is, you know, a very deep truth. Uh, like, you know, if if your friend of yours is like, I'm not drunk, you're like, oh, I think you're protesting too much. So you're denying a little bit too much, so you must be guilty. Uh, but it's sort of the same um, ending, right? If you're talking about it too much or... Uh, you know, sharing too much is probably something that's still bothering you, or you might be covering up for something, or you're overdoing it, which makes people think perhaps um, you're not really, it's, you're not really providing an accurate uh, portrayal of how you feel about the situation. So the lady doth protest too much. Quote nine is from Henry the Fourth, part two. This is also a quote, which I am sure, uh, is something that has been heard before. Uh, and it goes like this, uh, something that you have heard before, pardon me. Uneasy is the head that wears a crown. You might have heard heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, I'm just going to take a sip of water. There are multiple variations uh, of this. Uh, to those whom much is given, much is expected. Um, what does it mean? Well, leaders, those in power, uh, those who have some authority from kings, CEOs, presidents, teachers, parents, uh, committees, you know, they're not just giving orders or in charge or uh, being kind of the person who tells, you know, everybody else what to do because it's a great burden. You're also responsible and you're culpable to those that follow you, that believe in you, that obey you. Um, you are culpable for the decisions that you make and the outcomes of those decisions. Um, and so I think when we think about folks, again, from anybody from a teacher to the CEO of a company who's leading a group of people, it's not just that, that person's a boss. You know, That is kind of one side of it. The other side of it, is that there's a tremendous amount of responsibility and there's a tremendous amount of burden uh, as a CEO. I, I will say from personal experience, even of a company, right? Um, you have people looking up to you that have joined the company because of your vision. Uh, you have investors that have invested in you because they believe that you are the person that was going to bring this to market. So that's the flip side of kind of having um, sort of CEO after your name. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's this, this particular line is spoken by a king who can't sleep because he is worried about impending war. Um, and so that quote, uneasy is the head that wears a crown, uh, is something that is a very fitting capture. Um, it's not just glitz and glamour. There is also a second meaning, uh, which is 
that somebody that is in power is often usually a target. Uh, you are uh, the target of jealousy of people that want to dethrone you, uh, that may not agree with whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe they just don't like your face. There are a billion reasons. Uh, but if you have something and you're leading something um, and you're in charge, you're always going to have your detractors. Uh, people that are gunning for you, that are looking to depose you. So that is also kind of a second meaning. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown, that you know that uh, you are always, you know, it's it's not like you can ever relax. Uh, you've always got to kind of have your back to the wall and be aware of what's happening 360. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Um, number 10 is a beautiful and very short quote. It's from a play called Coriolanus, Act 3, Scene 2, and action is eloquence. That's the quote. Um, action speaks louder than words. Do, don't say. Talk is cheap. These are all sort of modern variations uh, of that. Um, and, um, you know, the quote basically is affirming that um, the most sincere and eloquent and uh, effective and elegant uh, sort of expressions um, are really action. So um, just do it. Um, in the business world, we often say execution is king, right? And that's what we sort of mean by that. Like, that's great. You've got a plan. You've got a strategy. But get it done. Just do it, as Nike would say. So action is eloquence. Our 11th quote Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Brevity is the soul of wit. Um, this is said by a character named Polonius, which is rather ironic because he is long-winded. Um, and, you know, it probably sounds familiar because in lots of different forms, uh, brevity basically means to be concise and brief. And wit can really mean anything. It can be funny, quick, smart, intelligent. Um, and what the quote is basically saying is, um, when you're concise, when you're short, when you're brief, um, that's sort of the kind of epitome of showing that you're intelligent or smart or funny or quick or witty. Um, it's the soul of intelligence, being economical in your expressions, in the way that you speak. Less is more. Um, you know, we say things like less is more. I get to the point. Um, he's basically saying it doesn't take too many words uh, to make a powerful point. Um, and again, in the business world, we think of this as sort of the executive summary, right, that you always see before a large sort of document. Um, or people want to see the bullet points. They want it drilled down to its essence. So, um, and of course, Shakespeare's saying this uh, very eloquently, brevity is the soul of wit. Uh, and again, that is from Hamlet. Um, and this is a quote that is, I'm sure will be familiar, and it's a beautiful one. It is from a play called As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 1, spoken by a character named Jacques. And the quote goes like this. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entries. And one man in his time plays many parts. I want to read you, actually, the whole 
all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven ages, at first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good cap on lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice turning again toward childish trouble. Pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history in second childishness and mere oblivion sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So what you just got read there was the cycle of life. And what Jacques is saying is, you know, you're born alone, you die alone. In between, you've got your parents, you might have children, uh, you have siblings. Uh, if you have children, you ostensibly have a partner at some point. Uh, you have friends, lovers, enemies, heroes, villains, and uh, you play different parts. Um, you probably are thinking I'm a great gal or guy and, you know, everybody loves me, but you may be actually be the arch villain in somebody else's story. And the point is, is we are playing different roles on a stage, which is life. Um, and those roles aren't just in relationship to us being a daughter, uh, or a mother or a friend or a girlfriend or a wife or a student or a boss or an employee. Um, you are also a character in other people's stories. It's it's really an extraordinary sort of capture of life, uh, of, of, of us playing different roles. Um, and uh, it's a very, very profound uh, quote. Uh, it is a core idea in major world religions in Hinduism, uh, which calls everything Maya, an illusion, that the bodies that we're in, the families that we're in, the jobs that we're doing, the people that we're attached to, it's an illusion. It's not reality. This is also true in Buddhism, uh, that this is not the real us. Uh, it is just a role that we are playing. Uh, you play the role of a good son when you are a uh, little boy, and hopefully when you're older, if you're a husband, you play the role of a husband, you play the role of a boss. These are just suits that you put on and take off. And uh, in other words, illusion. It's not really there. Um, I think the nice takeaway from this quote to remember that, that we're all merely actors on this stage, is um, think about this in times of trouble or when you feel challenged or if somebody isn't treating you well, that you know what, this is just a role that you're playing and it's going to be over soon. Uh, so all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. Beautiful. Our next quote uh, comes from Henry IV, part one, uh, act five, scene four. And uh, it's an easy one. The better part of valor is discretion. 
It is spoken by Falstaff, who appears uh, across, he's a knight, and he appears across a lot of different plays. Here, he's sort of a, I don't know, he's sort of like a coward, he's selfish, uh, he's greedy, you know, and, and he's, you know, but, and yet he speaks this amazing wisdom, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, he says discretion is the better part of valor. That's actually a modern day quote. What he says is the better part of valor is discretion. Um, and what he's saying is um, valor is being brave and courageous in the face of danger. Um, and what he's saying is that discrimination on how and when to be valorous, i.e. brave or courageous, when, how, and what um, is critical uh, because you don't want to hurt yourself. Uh, you want to create a bigger mess. And so that reflection is actually a very important part of valor uh, before you actually take action uh, and decide, is this worthy of your attention? So you don't just want to rush in because you see a situation. It's basically take, saying, take a beat um, and figure out what the situation is uh, and use your discretion before you get involved. The better part of valor is discretion. Um, so taking a beat, deciding whether this is something that you want to get involved in, that's actually the bigger part of being great. And now from one of my absolute favorite, favorite plays of all time, Othello, uh, act three, scene three, um, this beautiful quote, trifles light as air are to the jealous confirmations strong as proofs of holy writ. This powerful quote is spoken by the villain Iago, uh, who hates Othello. Uh, and the quick backstory is Othello the Moor uh, uh, is, uh, uh, is in love with Desdemona. And uh, Iago, who hates the villain, who hates Othello, uh, decides uh, that he wants to destroy Othello. And so he basically plants doubt in Othello's mind uh, about whether Desdemona is being faithful to him. Desdemona, by the way, is like virtue herself, uh, loyal, faithful, kind, sweet, beautiful, all those things that you would want in a woman. But he, Iago knows that Othello is a little bit of a hothead. And so he starts to place these doubts in his mind um, because he knows that Othello already suspects a little bit that the loyal Desdemona might be cheating. So he's just taking advantage of this. Um, and he is basically uh, sharing uh, with uh uh, uh, you know, that if somebody is already, their mind is churning and they are uh, already in a place of uh, great sort of uh, agitation, that anything can set them off. That's literally what he's saying. Trifles light as air, nothing to the jealous, to somebody that's already spinning, are confirmations as strong as proofs of holy writ. It's basically like handing them a signed confession, right? So even if it's absolutely untrue, if you're in that frenzied state of mind, I can just make a suggestion to you and you will bite and go, oh my God, that's true. When in reality, it's absolutely not true. And so um, I, uh, Iago says this in a soliloquy, he's telling the audience that just a seed, if I just put a seed in this fertile mind, uh, this fertile, unsettled mind, it's going to grow into an oak tree. So he's sharing uh, 
what he is going to do, that he doesn't need to do too much, right? Um, and so I think the takeaway from this is to remember that uh, if you're agitated, uh, hopefully you're not using this as a strategy to hurt somebody else, but um, that if you're agitated, you know, try not to be in this state, first of all. Um, but if you do get into this state, be wary. Uh, it can be very dangerous. Uh, and as it is for Othello and Desdemona. It's my favorite play. It, every modern theme that you can think of is in that play. Um, actually, the four tragedies are my favorite play. So I, I shouldn't say it's like picking between your kids. I do love Othello. I also love Hamlet, Macbeth, and Lear. Uh, Lear for obvious reasons, but um, uh, those four are my absolute favorites. Um, but Othello has a very special place in my heart. Um, quote number 18. Um, it's from Macbeth, the other tragedy uh, of the four that uh, uh, has these great quotes. Uh, well, they all do, actually. Uh, act, scene, act one, scene four. The love that follows us is sometimes our trouble, which we still think as love. So this is a quote about love. And uh, it's, what, it's King Duncan speaking to Lady Macbeth. And uh, he's basically talking about his subjects and he's saying that his subjects love him so much that uh, they go to great trouble for him. And he's very worried about them. Uh, and then he says, as he loves her, uh, and so she must, it must be a burden for her to know that he loves her. Um, and so there's some great profound truth in there, right? That love comes with obligation. And I think we live in a society where when we think about sort of love, we think about like, Oh, it's holding hands and skipping through the fields 24 seven. Um, and it's really not right. That's a surface part of it. Uh, love is much deeper. It requires reciprocation, uh, which means that you have to give of yourself sometimes when you are not, uh, when you don't want to, or maybe when you're not in a position to, it's not just free. Um, and it's not always easy. Uh, and it's not always convenient, but we still see it as love and we welcome it as love and we thank it as love. Um, so the next time your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, partners, kids, cat, like is annoying you, just remember that this is part of love and uh, it's a burden. Uh, but also this is something that we are thankful for. Imagine if these people were not in your life uh, causing you this grief and burden. And, you know, wouldn't that be sad? So. Uh, I think that's a lovely quote. Um, the next one, it's from Richard II, Act 5, Scene 5. And uh, this is a somber quote. Um, I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. Somber, I think it's self-explanatory. It gives me anxiety when I read that quote. Uh, and it basically is saying, uh, whiling away time? Well, in the end, time will while you away. Uh, so make sun make hay while the sun shines that's a another modern version of that um that you know you should use the time before it uses you uh take opportunities uh you know take that class talk to the person you wanted to talk to tell the person that you really like or admire that you really like or admire them um use the time wisely uh, because we are all given only a limited amount of time. And if you waste that time, you will ultimately find that the time has wasted you. So uh, a bit of an anxiety-provoking quote, but it is uh, 
as real as it gets. That's real talk. Number 20, which uh, is uh, a uh, wonderful one. Um, Why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. Um, And it may sound very familiar because the quote that we often hear um, is the world's your oyster. But the quote that we have here is, why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. Um, And it's a very common phrase that we use. And it appears in the Merry Wives of Windsor, Act 2, Scene 2. It's spoken by Pistol to the conman Falstaff. Uh, now, Pistol's obsessed with money, and he's talking about how he's going to get money by any means. And, uh, you know, an oyster, I'm a vegetarian, so I actually don't know this, but uh, an oyster, I, I understand, is very hard to open. Uh, but once you crack it, you have access to its gifts, possibly a pearl. Um, and so the meaning was a little bit, the meaning that we use it for is, is the way that we mean that phrase is a little bit different. Uh, what he was saying there was... Um, you know, I'm going to get the money by any means necessary. A little bit different from the meaning that we use today, uh, which I often associate it when somebody is starting a new journey. I often think of it with people who are like graduating college um, or, uh, you know, leaving uh, a program at graduate school and going on to their professions or starting something new or, you know, uh, they're young and vibrant and, uh, you know, doing something new. Anytime anybody starts anything new, you know, we, we say the world's your oyster to mean life is ahead of you and uh, you're going to have, you know, really the, everything's out there for the taking. New journeys, it's up to you to get out there and, and you know, grab the bull by the horns, another saying, very similar, to get out there and take all of the treasures that are waiting for you in the world, crack it open. So that's a very sort of interesting um, example of how... Um, a quote has come to mean something else today. It's been tweaked and it has a a very different meaning today. And uh, the next quote is from the tragedy of King Lear. It appears in Act 5, Scene 3. And it goes like this. Jesters do oft prove prophets. It is spoken by Regan, one of the two evil sisters. Um, And uh, ironically, what she speaks is the truth. Um, And there are variations of that quote. Uh, Many a true word has been spoken in jest. Um, And this is a very interesting quote because, first of all, she's referring, there's sort of a subtle reference to that device of the fool, the dwarf, the jester. Uh, who's the truth teller, right? He can tell the truth because he's disfigured. He's ugly. He's short. He, uh, can, you know, he's funny and people laugh at him. People make fun of him. And all of that gives him kind of, and he's also magical. People think of these, these characters as magical, but that gives him the privilege of speaking. And so it's a little bit of a play on that, right? The reference to the fool. Gestures do oft prove prophets. And you will notice in Shakespeare Anytime you see that character of the fool, the dwarf, the jester, look twice because that character is going to be speaking and sharing and uh, probably, you know, opening it up a, a, uh, uh, 
a can of truths uh, and sharing some very deep insights uh, and revealing things that maybe the characters that he's speaking to don't pick up on. Right? But they have that insight that the, the, the gift of prophecy and the future and foretelling. So they're, you know, they're interesting characters. I wrote a paper really, I think like freshman year in college about the dwarf and the fool. Um, they're really creepy characters, actually, when you go into it. They're just these kind of people that live in the, in the twilight, you know, and uh, serve the king, are very loyal to the king, but get away with murder, can get into the intrigue, say things, see the future. Uh, so they are a little creepy. Uh, they, they, they serve their purpose. Um, and she, what she also means is, you know, jokes, as we often know, um, sometimes they have a grain of truth in them. Sometimes they have the complete truth, right? So um, not to make you paranoid, but often um, jokes have a grain of truth in them. Um, there's truth in every joke. And, and so, um, you know, uh, what she is offering up is that in mirth, uh, look for maybe the grain of truth. Jesters do oft prove prophets. There are actually a few that I have skipped. There are actually two that I skipped. So um, one of them uh, is also from Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 3. This is so relevant to everyone that I know. Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. Um, in this particular uh, scene, uh, what's happened is um, the witches have told Macbeth, there are three witches who I adore, uh, and by the way, if anybody is in New York and has not seen this, please go to Sleep No More. It, I've seen it like 750 times. Um, it is a sort of, um, you know, immersive theater experience. It can be terrifying at first. I have, I did the first times alone because I already knew that they separate you from your friends. Um, but I have gone with friends. It really doesn't matter whether you go with friends. It's nice to meet up afterwards and have a drink, but you will be unpacking for the next four days. And every time you go, it's different. And there are some people that have gone hundreds of times because there's a different choose your own adventure, like unfolding in front of you. So go see sleep no more. It's by punch drunk. Uh, if you're in the New York area, I think they're also, uh, I think they're, I think, no, they might do it in other places, but the, I think the original is in New York and it's amazing. Um, and it's Macbeth. It's based on Macbeth. Sleep no more is a line from Macbeth. Okay. So this quote, present fears are less than horrible imagining. So the three witches um, have told Macbeth that he is going to assassinate King Duncan and he is going to become the next king of Scotland. So he starts thinking about this um, and he uh, is horrified. The more that he thinks about it, he's totally like horrified uh, of this potential future that has been prophesied by these witches. Um, and so this quote is that that clearly hasn't happened yet, right? But he's imagining these horrible things, the worst things that could happen. Um, and what he faces now is almost, which is really nothing, just him thinking about this, is less horrible than what he's imagining in the future. So his mind is running away from him and he's coming up with these scenarios that don't exist. Um, but I think the takeaway here is that often the things that we imagine uh, that are so bad and, you know, uh, you know, terrible and are going to do us in are 
the imagining in and of itself is the worst thing. Um, things are not much more worse than we imagine. Our imagining is actually the pinnacle uh, of the worst mountain. Um, now, this quote is gorgeous, and it is so gorgeous, it brings tears to my eyes. I'm going to play you a clip from a little movie, and you're going to hear the quote, and I wonder if you can pick it up. It's from a movie I loved when I was a little kid, and I'm sure many people did too. Uh, it's the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. And this is at the end of the movie. And I'm just going to play it's uh, a little bit. And I want, I wonder if you can pick out the quote. Um, and here it goes. Mr. Wonka, I am extraordinarily busy, sir. I just wanted to ask about the chocolate. The, the lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. When does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't say any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in his photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses, hearing and hearing contained, etc., etc., fax mentis incendium gloria calcum, etc., etc., memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're a crook. You're a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do a thing like this? Build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster. I said good day. Come on, Charlie. Let's get out of here. I'll get even with him. It's the last thing I ever do. If I work once a gobstopper, you'll get one. Mr. Wonka? So shines a good deed. In a weary Charlie, my boy, you won. You did it. You did it. I knew you would. I just knew you would. Oh, Charlie, forgive me for putting you through this. Please forgive me. Come in, Mr. Wilkinson. Charlie, meet Mr. Wilkinson. Pleasure. <laughs> I love that seed. Um, it just, it, um, it, it actually makes me a little emotional. Um, so uh, I, I'm sure all of you know uh, or have heard of uh, the book and the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. And this is actually the original uh, Gene Wilder version. And uh, just a quick synopsis is there's a little boy, poor little boy, who uh, ends up winning the golden ticket uh, to, uh, along with uh, a bunch of other kids, to go visit this mysterious, magical chocolate maker, Willy Wonka. And uh, the prize is that one of them is going to pick be picked to become the heir to that chocolate factory. So when Willy Wonka dies or retires or whatever, he's going to pass it on because he doesn't have children. And so what you're seeing is um, each of the children ends up uh, like failing. He is actually testing each of them. Uh, this isn't 
this isn't made obvious till the end. It, it was made obvious just now, but he's testing each of these children. Um, it's like the seven sins. One like eats too much and gets like dinged. Another one is very demanding. Uh, you know, another one uh, just watches a ton of TV. So they e- each end up getting eliminated um, in different ways, except for Charlie. Um, and another test is that uh, Willy Wonka has kind of a villainous man approach each of the children. Uh, and of course, you don't know this until the end and say, if you steal the recipe for his latest invention, like the amazing gobstopper, and bring it back to me, you know, I'll give you money or whatever. And so um, Willy Wonka gives, I think, each of the children a gobstopper. And they, you know, uh, the test is, are they going to steal one of these and take it back to this guy for money if they don't get chosen, or even if they do get chosen? And so uh, what the scene that I played you is that um, Willy Wonka, basically, it's the end. Uh, he's the last, uh, Charlie is the last child standing. And so therefore, he is supposed to win the chocolate factory. Uh, but Willy Wonka basically says you are in uh, uh, default of the contract. And so you don't win. Goodbye and leave. Um, and, uh, he's really rude and, uh, you know, the grandfather and Charlie are leaving and that was the grandfather yelling at Charlie, uh, at, at Willy Wonka and going, you know, you're a fraud and, and Charlie has that gobstopper that was given to him. Um, and he can use that obviously to give it to the, the villain that was hired by Willy Wonka, but nobody knows that give it to him and make a fortune and whatever. And he walks over after Willy Wonka has been so ugly to him and leaves him the candy on his desk. And that's when Willy Wonka turns around and um, I I am such a a simp. I don't know why I'm like, I get choked up and Willy Wonka turns around and cry. Uh, No, I'm crying. Willy Wonka wasn't crying. Turns around, hugs uh, Charlie and is like, you passed the test. I knew you would. And that's what you're hearing. And I don't know if you got the quote, but the quote was, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. Um, in the movie, he says in a weary world, which I think is actually uh, better. One of the few times uh, it's a character um, called Portia uh, who says this quote. Um, and she's basically, you know, she's talking about how, you know, a small candle um can put out a huge amount of light. Um, And she's talking about how small things can have a great impact, right? Things, deed, people, uh, uh, gestures. Uh, You never know, right? You could say something in passing to somebody and uh, it could change their life. It could inspire them to do something. Um, But the point is that uh, small things can often have a uh, big impact. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I think about chaos theory about a butterfly, you know, flapping its wings, uh, somewhere over the Pacific and on the other side of the world, a tsunami happens. Um, that small action puts into, uh, movement, a chain of, of events that end up eventually culminating in a tsunami on the other side of the world. And so I kind of feel like it's a little bit of that. So doing something good illumin- illuminates all the world. Uh, so you shine a light on the world entire. 
Uh, and uh, this is again Portia. Uh, oh, I don't think I mentioned that. Play is Merchant of Venice, uh, Act Five, Scene One. So, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. The next quote is from Othello, Act Two, Scene Three, um, and it's a good one. How poor are they that don't have patience? What would did ever heal? Oh, what wound did ever heal by but by degree? How poor are they that don't have patience? What wound did ever heal but by degree? Uh, this is also spoken by Iago, the villain. And uh, it is spoken uh, to a friend. They're frustrated that their plot isn't unfolding fast enough. Their plot to do in Othello, the Moor, is not unfolding fast enough. And this is Iago's way of saying patience is required. Uh, we may know of um, similar quotes. Uh, All good things come to those who um, is one. But what he's basically saying, you know, the analogy he's using is that of uh, uh, an injury, a wound, a cut, a tear, an injury, a broken bone. Uh, all of these things take time to heal. So he's saying in the same way, plots and plans uh, and uh, machinations, uh, all these take time to unfold, uh, to mature. Um, and he's basically saying impatience is for losers. Um, and so I think that is a uh, great uh, uh, piece of advice. How poor are they that don't have patience? What wound did ever heal but by degree? So note to self, impatience is for losers. Um, and now we come uh, to the last handful of quotes. Um, the last one, um, I think from Hamlet. I don't think we have any more from Hamlet, uh, which appears in act four, scene, uh, five. And, uh, here it is. We know what we are, but we know not what we may be. We know what we are, but we know not what we may be. And this is spoken by Ophelia, who's talking about her declining faculties. Um, and, and what it really means is, you know, we know who we quote unquote are. Um, we don't know our futures. We don't know what's going to happen, what's going to change, what's going to occur, how we may change. Um, and therefore, what we may become, right? The only constant in life is change. Um, not just death and taxes, but also change. That is the only thing we can bank on. Um, the people that love us today may not love us tomorrow. Um, the children uh, that we have may not turn out to be the way that we expect them to be. Um, the job, the work that we do, uh, the things that we dedicate our lives to may not be what we expect them to be in the future. So the only thing we can know is what we are today in the moment. We do not know what we may be. Now, I take this quote uh, actually in a more profound way, which is to live in the now, because you just don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. It's also, you know, there's so much talk about the power of now and living in the now and the next moment will take care of itself if you're just focused on the now. But that's very, very true. Um, and I think that this quote um, in very different words and in a very different situation 
uh, embodies the same thing. Um, and so the uh, next to last quote comes from uh, the beloved A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act One, Scene One. And it's about love. Um, and it goes like this. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Now, first of all, um, this is spoken by a woman named Helena. She's speaking to Lysander, a guy that she likes, who doesn't like her because he is more interested in a woman that he considers more attractive and beautiful. Um, and so she quotes, um, this saying out of actually jealousy and desperation because she wants him to look at her, but it actually, um, is ageless and timeless wisdom. So what does it mean? Well, uh, the winged Cupid, um, you know, the little cherub that we see with the bow and arrows during Valentine's day or on any on a Van Halen album, smoking a cigarette, um, is often painted with his eyes closed as he's taking aim. Um, and so she is, and you know, these cherub, this cherub, uh, uh, Eros, uh, he is one of the gods of love. Um, and you know, we see him on Valentine's day. He also shows up in India as the God of Kama with a bow and arrow. Uh, you know, signifying love and desire. And these gods shoot arrows and bows. Uh, and by the way, that's another little interesting thing. All the Indo-European gods came from the same place. There's actually a great book called Sophie's World um, that came out years ago. It's a philosophy book. Um, and it was kind of, it captures it in a pop culture way. Like all you need to look at is sort of the Indo-European pantheon of gods, uh, especially the Greek and Indian gods, and you'll see that they're all like sort of correlate, and it's, it's very, very fascinating. But anyway, um, this god uh, of love is often painted uh, as, uh, or depicted as having his eyes closed and shooting an arrow. And so what she's saying is, um, you know, it's nice to have looks like the woman that you're interested in, but um, that's going to fade. And true love is based on qualities, uh, your personality, traits, who the entirety of the person is. Um, again, I think it's really, there's, uh, it's a great, it's very humorous because she's saying it out of pure jealousy and desperation. But it is really uh, this amazing sort of wisdom and nothing could be truer, right? Um, we, you know, we often may initially fall in love with somebody for the physical, right? Um, but often we end up staying because of who they are, because of the ethereal, for the qualities, for the personality, for the traits they have, kindness, courage, wittiness. They make us laugh, compassion. They're generous. They're funny. They're passionate. They have integrity. They're good at what they do. They're confident, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are many other quotes that sort of allude to this. Um, beauty is skin deep is one. Mm. Don't judge a book by its cover is another. Um, but, you know, it is a, a, a kind of um, piece of advice and wisdom, you know, that we should all heed that initially it's, you know, it's nice to be attracted to someone, but eventually 
that fades, that goes away. And what are we left with? We're left with the person. And so the point she's making is love doesn't look with the eyes. Love looks not with the eyes. It's not about the physical, but with the mind. It's about everything other than, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. And of course, she's a woman like scorned, and that's why she's saying it. But um, of course, uh, she is right. So it's done in a, in a really interesting sort of manner. Um, the last quote that we have tonight is uh, from Henry the Fourth, Part One. Uh, it's Act Five, Scene Two, and I think it's a great one to end on. Um, and it goes like this: The time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely were too long. Now, it's spoken by a character named Hotspur, uh, who is a nobleman, and he leads a rebellion against the king, uh, Henry IV, and he's obsessed with honor um, and obsessed with glory, but he has a quick temper, so he's one of these interesting characters. He's the son of Earl of Northumberland, but he is um, so sort of valiant uh, in battle that Henry IV admires him uh, to the point where he kind of, you know, sort of, says in front of his own son, uh, you know, this guy is really great. I wish he was my son. I wish Hotspur were my son. Um, but what's interesting is Hotspur, as the play unfolds, actually reveals himself um, as somebody that where his strength, his greatest strength, uh, as is always the case, is also his greatest weakness um, and why he may not actually be fit to become a ruler. Um, but the quote in and of itself uh, says something very profound. If you spend your life doing meaningless, vapid things, you are wasting that time. Sounds kind of like, yeah, I know that, that's self-evident, but do you really, right? We say that we, we hear these things and we go, yep, I know that, but we put them aside and then spend our lives doing things that truly are sort of meaningless in whatever sense, in the spiritual sense, in uh, for our own personal nourishment and growth, uh, for our work. Um, and so I think it's a wonderful quote to kind of end on. And I wanted to read you sort of a larger quote and then the shorter quote. Um, he's basically just saying life is short. It's very short. So make sure that whatever it is that you're doing is worthy of the time and attention that you're giving it. Um, because, uh, you know, the time is so short that um, to spend that shortness basically in a wrong way, that's what basically means, we're too long is a bit of a, stra- a, tragedy, is a tragedy. Um, and so here's the whole quote. I cannot read them now. Oh, gentlemen, the time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely were too long. If life did ride upon a dial's point, still ending at the arrival of an hour. And if we live life, we live to tread on kings. If die, brave death when princes die with us. Now, for our consciences, the arms are fair when the intent of bearing them is just. And so the quote, the time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely or too long. And that is the last quote in this collection. It was about 24 quotes. Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed and got something out of this. 
Uh, and if you are not already a fan of Shakespeare, that it encourages you to look into the plays or at least look up some of the uh, sayings or inspirational sayings that you see on Instagram or Snapchat or uh, whatever social media you're on or the cups or notepads you have around your house. Um, and maybe it'll encourage you to dig into the plays. Um, and if not, that's fine. But um, now you know where a lot of this wisdom comes from in our modern lives. Um, so happy to be able to share this with you. There, We could go on and on and on. And maybe we'll do a few more parts because there is endless wisdom uh, we can do, you know, we can also look at sort of common usage of uh, uh, the phrases that are in common usage that actually came from Shakespeare. I mentioned a few at the beginning, uh, something wicked this way comes and in a pickle, uh, which are both uh, are actually originated uh, in Shakespeare plays. Um, but there is so much to dig into. And that's so interesting. And most importantly, that we can learn from and apply to our lives. Uh, William Shakespeare, the ultimate psychologist. Um, so I wish you a wonderful evening and we'll look forward to seeing you hopefully tomorrow night. Thanks everybody.